Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Oh, hello, Beatle fans. It's been so long, and, you know, we've all been so busy with things that we really didn't want to be busy with, with COVID and a pandemic going on. Busy being not busy, but I'm happy to be back again, and we have a brand new guest for you. Um, This week's guest is Jay Mark. He's uh, originally from Atlantic City, and um, he's currently in New York. I'm not sure where, but We'll just call it New York. Um, hi, Jay. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. So you are originally from Atlantic City, right? Yeah, you'll probably pick up some of my Jersey accent uh, during this conversation. I never totally yeah. got rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I spent, I spent uh, you know, about 11 years growing up in New Jersey as a kid, so... Um, I always say I have I, I have a vocabulary like of you know a native New Jersey person. <laughs> I try to keep it under under wraps a lot of the time. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, Atlantic boy Atlantic City back in the '60s wasn't uh, what was that like? I mean, oh, it was it great. Wasn't... It was great in the winter time. Well, first of all, my parents moved there from Philadelphia when I was two years old. And um, I guess because they liked the beach. My mother was a real beach fanatic. Uh, we had a rooming house there. That people came and stayed with us in, during the summer. But in the wintertime, we had the city to ourselves, me and my friends. You know, it was just a regular, like, small town, 65,000 people, something like that. In the summertime, you know, maybe a million or so showed up, and it was a party, you know. So uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was just a, a great city. It was nothing like it is now. It was a regular small town community more or less you know homes stores shops but uh, no real um, industrialization or anything like that you know there were the 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 funds that were necessary to keep the city running came from it being a resort so those three months a year when people came there to uh, you know celebrate the summer that's when mm-hmm. the city got its income that kept us going for the rest of the year and of course everybody knows that uh, after the advent of uh, the popularity of Vegas and Disneyland, uh, Atlantic City was desperate to find some way to make money, and that's how the casinos came in. But I was long gone by the time that happened. Yeah, yeah. So it was. So when you lived there, it was still in its you know beautiful resort town. Um, yes. Kind of, kind of. I want to say, kind of that Cape May kind of feeling. I would assume the kind of yeah, New Jersey. Yeah, Wildwood Cape. Why would Cape May, you know, there's typical Jersey Shore communities. But Atlantic City happened to be famous. You know, it was the world's famous playground. And um, I guess that all happened in the, maybe the 30s and 40s, 50s. I know growing up, there was always something to do. Steel Pier, you go for 65 cents, you could spend the whole day on Steel Pier, see two movies, first-run movies, see live bands, and um, 
uh, going on rides and stuff. It was, it was great. It, really, it was really a great place to grow up. I have no <laughs> bad vibes about it at all in hindsight. So you ended up, you actually, you graduated from, I guess, Atlantic City High School it would be or something, you know. Yeah, that. yeah, that's, yeah. So, and then and you ended up, did you go to college? For six months. When I got out of high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, who knows what they want to do at like 16 or 17 years old. So right. um, I, I, I had a hobby in electronics. And uh, so I said, all right, maybe I'll be an electrical engineer. So I went to Drexel. I actually got a scholarship. I went to Drexel, but six months in, I totally lost interest in school. They had a computer there. It was one of the earliest IBM computers that totally fascinated me. And I wound up cutting all my classes and hanging out at the computing center. So I just eventually left school. I was only there like six months. So I am an, I am an uneducated person in some respects. So, but you ended up with a job at uh, Convention Hall in Convention Atlantic Hall, City. Right. Yeah, now how did, how did you stumble upon this? How did you get this? You know, I don't, I don't remember exactly how it happened. I must have been looking for work, and somebody said something to somebody. I don't know. I, I really can't remember. But I mm-hmm. was interviewed, and uh, I got hired. And I, um, I I wound up working there for like two or three years. I did the three Miss America pageants, you know, and, of course, the, in 64, the Beatles were there, and uh, the Democratic Convention and a Miss America pageant all in the space of a month. So um, wow, but but I don't remember. Somebody must have said something to my parents about there's a job opening. I don't know. I really don't remember. But mm-hmm. I got in and I was there for a few years. Yeah. How how old were you? Twenty two at the time the Beatles were there. Yeah, I mean. Weren't you – and you were a soundman. You were working in the sound department, right? Yeah, I was originally just hired as a sound guy. We had, there was about a half a dozen of us. I was the youngest. And then uh, for some reason, which, again, I don't remember the details, my boss, after about three or four months, made me a supervisor. So I was a supervisor <laughs> over these other folks. But I, I swear to you, I never remember supervising anything. You know, I would come <laughs> to work. My boss would say, okay, here's what's happening today. You do this room. You know, you do that room. You know, that was it. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe they were just trying to get the kid to get up early and open the doors, you know, and do all the, do all the hard work while they slept late and could come in and you have everything set up. Who knows, you know, um, because, you know, it's amazing because that's a job, you know, in this day and age, you'd have to be well-trained to do. You don't just walk into, you know a convention center or convention hall or any kind of theater and, you know, Oh, I'd like to be a sound man, you know, <laughs> work in your sound department. Well, so, I'm guessing, I don't remember exactly, but I'm, I'm guessing that the first few months they just had me running cables and stuff like that. And then mm-hmm. they put me behind a console at some point and found out that I could do the job. I, I have to, I'm sorry. I have to plead uh, the, the vagueness of memory for the specifics of those days, but my, my mind tends to work like that in general. I, I, some things stick and some don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, also at the time, who who's to say, you know, that we'll ever have to recall those memories, you know? But the fact <laughs> is, is that the fact is, is that you you were there August thirtieth, nineteen sixty four, when the Beatles played. Um, what do you recall about that that day? I mean, well, leading up to it, to I mean, was it was it? I mean, was it a just a nightmare scene around Atlantic City, around the hall, around you know, screaming girls? Well, 
well, I mean, my world was not that world. I was in my 20s already. I was not really caught up in the Beatles, the Beatles fad at the time. In fact, prior to doing that gig, I only had a passive interest in them. You know, it was just another gig. Um, right. But what actually happened was they blew me away that night, and I've been a fan ever since. And I was probably one of the few people in the whole room. There was like 30,000 people there uh, who could hear them because I was in a, in a soundproof booth on the side of the stage. So sorry, folks. If you missed it, I got it for you. <laughs> um, was it recorded? A recording was made somewhere along the line because it's online. So uh-huh. uh, I'm not clear exactly how that happened. But uh, but you yeah, weren't fact, it. No. You, but, you weren't uh, the one recording it. No, that was not me. Mm-hmm. I don't know who. I mean, it could have been anybody who was there if they had access to our audio feed. But... Um, Somehow it emerged, but uh, I, I always did feel kind of bad that nobody could hear anything, probably but me. Maybe the people in the front first few rows. But the sound system there was designed for regular conventions. So at that time, uh, just stop me if I'm going into too much detail. That no, room, you're, the you're never. Hall, there's never too much detail. Never too much. Okay. Well, through the miracle of editing, you can make it as detailed as you want. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, that that room was the largest indoor uh, arena with an unobstructed view. In other words, there was no poles from beginning to end. It was all self-supporting. It was almost mm. a block long and a block wide. And we also had the world's largest organ at that time, which had 64,000 pipes. And when the low notes wow. played, the whole building shook. It's, it was fantastic. <clears throat> so um, the uh, – what was the question? Oh, so it was about me hearing that. Anyway, so when the concert started – Everybody started screaming, of course, and you could not hear, you couldn't really hear yourself think out on the floor. That's what really blew me away about them. We, this was long before the era of stage monitors or anything like that. We didn't even have the instruments mic'd. They had their amps, Ringo on the drums, and there was only vocal mics. There was a vocal mic on Ringo, a vocal on, uh, one vocal on John, and another one that was shared by uh, Paul and um, George. George. Mm-hmm. That was it. Three microphones. Can you imagine? So, yeah. Um, and, and they were totally in, in tune, on time. There's one, there was a part in one song, I think it was uh, And I Love Her, where somebody, uh, they sang the wrong words. John and Paul accidentally sang, one sang the first verse and one sang the second verse at the same time. You can hear it in the tape. But, man, I'm telling you, they, they really knocked me out. And so I've been a diehard fan ever since. Wow. So so what was your job over in the booth? Well, I was the guy who ran the board. You know, I was the engineer. Mm-hmm. Was, in fact, I mean, there wasn't that much work to do. You said, this was a, a gig with three microphones. That doesn't take a genius to set up. So we set up the mics, and I go in the booth. You know, we have our monitors in there. But that uh, that room had a movable booth. It was on wheels. I would say it was mm-hmm. about eight feet by eight feet maybe 10 by 10. And mm-hmm. we had a console in there and the power amps and so forth. But it was soundproof. So uh, during the conventions, the operator would be in there, and uh, the only time he would really get to hear what was going on outside was if he opened the door and stuck his head out, okay? And the, <laughs> but, but being in the booth, if there was ever any feedback or anything, you, you would hear it right away, the same as they would hear it outside 
because it would feed back through the microphone. So that was never an issue. I can only imagine the group of you in this booth and knowing that that screaming is going on and no one is ever going to dare open that door. You're, I could just well, picture the, you. No, it wasn't exactly like that. First of all, there was no group. It was me and my boss. And the, okay. And maybe and there might have been one other person that was traveling with the Beatles that might have been in there, and I don't remember. Uh, it was very low key. You know, it was just another gig. Uh, me and my boss and um, whoever the Beatles rep was. Uh, I, I think there was somebody in there from there. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't like people would come along and open the door or anything. We were on the stage with them, and that was it. And there mm-hmm. were also two, as I recall, there were two opening acts, but I cannot remember. I thought it was Jackie DeShannon and Stevie Wonder. But I've never been able to get confirmation of anybody on who the opening acts were. I'm sure about Jackie DeShannon. I'm not sure about Stevie Wonder. So th- this is my mm-hmm. hazy memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you have a good did you have a good view to watch them? Well, sure. It was already on the side of the stage. The stage was maybe sixty feet wide, and we were in, you know on the on, uh, on stage right, about you know ten feet away from the edge of the stage. So I was maybe twenty feet away from them. But yeah, so you had the, glass, you had the best seats in the house, you know, huh? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, the people in the first rows. I mean. Probably the only people who really had a good shot at them were the people in the first few rows because as soon as they started singing, everybody got up and stood on their chairs and were going nuts. You know, it was, but the scream was the thing. It was I, you can't even imagine unless you were there what it was like to hear this constant scream for a half hour. Unbelievable, and um, you know, they were pretty good, pretty good little band, I have to say. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, there's a picture that. Uh, we're sharing with everybody who's listening on um, the little uh, slide show that we have of pictures of you. And um, it's, it's, there's a picture of you in the off to, well, I guess behind them. They're all standing. Right. Well, two are sitting, two are standing. Is that the press conference? Right. Was it prior to that? Yeah, we did a new, yeah, we did a news conference before the show. There was actually another picture that was taken of just me and them, uh, the four of them at a the table and me, on the side with my little console. But I gave that picture to somebody I was dating, and I don't know, it disappeared. But um, I was lucky to even get this one uh, because it just so happened that, um, I don't remember how long it was after the gig, but uh, I, was, I was dating a woman who was a model, and she had been voted Miss New Jersey State Fair at some point. Well, mm-hmm. the guy that sponsored the New Jersey State Fair was named George Hammett. He also owned Steel Pier, and he was the guy who also brought the Beatles in. So my girlfriend <laughs> oh. happened to be in his office one day and saw those pictures of me on her wall, on his wall, and said, oh, wow, it's my boyfriend. Can I have those pictures? And that's how I happened to have them, because otherwise I would have no, you know, visual um, representation of the incident at all. It's just by luck I got those pictures. Mm. Wow. Wow. Um... Yeah, it was a fluke, a total fluke. Yeah, so what was the what was the, what's it like attending a press conference? A Beatles press is it I mean well, obviously it's not the screaming mayhem that Well, you can see by is. looking at the picture there's just a mob of photographers totally surrounding them and then they're there at their little table and behind them was George Hammond and me and maybe one or two other people. Um not a big room, a small room, maybe held 50 people in there. But, you know, they were who they were. So they were big news, and there was 
news media from all over the world there and they followed their, their, their whole tour. It was pretty – it's a shame we don't have a tape of that because, you know, they're very jovial guys. They're real smart asses, you know, and they were had great answers for all the stupid questions that were being asked to them. Like you can imagine Bob Dylan having a news conference, the same kind of thing, you know. You get asked all these silly insipid questions that are just – it's just like people doing their gig, you know. That It's not a problem, mm-hmm. but it's nothing that you would – you would uh, where you would think you would ever learn anything that matters in an environment like that. It was fun. The whole, the whole thing was great. Um, and uh, I am really glad that uh, those couple of pictures got taken and even that the thing got recorded because it was a good concert. Quite memorable. Um, I can only imagine, you know, that you, you don't even realize, you know, as you said, you weren't, you weren't a, a, a regular fan and, uh, you know, um, just a casual fan, if that, and suddenly there you are, you know, in the middle of this and, and standing, you know, six feet away from, you know, the biggest band the world has ever known. And uh, it, it's quite quite a story. Uh, but you, you actually went on, did, now, were you a musician prior to meeting them? I'm not really a musician. I play guitar a little bit, but not so you'd call me a musician. It's a hobby. And that, has, okay. that has nothing to do with nothing to do with the with the Beatles. Um, yeah, I didn't my, know if, if, I if, if, if they inspired you because a lot of people come, you know, say, "Oh, well, that's the reason I picked up a guitar." No, was no, seeing no. the Beatles. No In my case, there was no connection there. No, no connection. But you went on. No. You you continued on with a career in recording. Well, first um, I had a radio career. I was I was a disc jockey for ten years. First in Atlantic City. And then in Philadelphia. And um, I still had a little bit of a Philly accent, too, I'm sure. But I went, um, yeah, I mean, radio, audio was a hobby of mine my whole life. And it just so happened that one of my early gigs was at Convention Hall. But then I also was on the radio in Atlantic City, this station called WMID. And Mm -hmm. from there I went to WDAS-FM in Philadelphia, which was the first underground rock station on the East Coast. So... I mean, it was pretty good. I had my little artistic fingers dipped in various pots over the course of my life. But then after mm-hmm. 10 years in radio, I really I really wasn't into it. I couldn't see it as a permanent pursuit. But I had been interested in recording because I had uh, been able to go to a recording session at one point when I was still on the air on the radio, and I was just blown away by the sound and the equipment. So when um, – this is a little bit of diversion away from the Beatles, but I won't stay long – so I, I was Oh no no no! I want to talk. Up. I want to talk about your career because, you know, um, and we'll get into this. I mean, you you've had you've had quite the career. I mean, you know, you started out, you know, as the kid in the sound booth at at you know a Beatles concert, and right. ended up with a career in recording, which is still within the music industry. And you know, I think the readers or or listeners, sorry, not the readers, would be you know find this really fascinating what you've done since. Well, depending on your level, your threshold of boredom, if you're interested, <laughs> fine. You know, uh, own. Yeah. But the short uh, story is I went from I went from a convention hall into radio. I was a disc jockey for 10 years, the last couple of years in Philadelphia. And the station I was working at, that I just mentioned, they changed their format. So everybody left our station and went to our competitor, which was called WMMR. And they're still there. 
Oh um, yeah, but I very big. But I didn't. I said, I, I said, I'm. This is enough radio for me. Let me see if I can get into recording. And then I started, I just started hanging around the only studio I knew about in Philadelphia, which was called Sigma Sound. They needed mm-hmm. somebody to help wire up a new console, and uh, because I knew how to solder, I got hired. And then I went from there to being an assistant, and then an engineer, and then like you know, then retired. Mm. Now, also in our slideshow of pictures, I I found on your website a picture of uh, you at the board with um, Stevie Wonder. Yes. Now, was is that a picture? Was he? Were you in the? Uh, were you there for for a recording for him? Is that what's? I mean, when was this? I would say the early seventies. Yeah, I was the engineer. I. I, well, like I alluded to a moment ago, I got a job at Sigma Sound. After the console was built, they let me become an assistant. And after a year of that, they made me an engineer. And I worked with some great people. Stevie was one of them. Um, Paul Williams, I did an album with him. I did a lot of stuff with Gamble and Huff, you know, the OJs and Billy Paul and people like that. And uh, um then there was stuff with Madonna. You know, Madonna I only worked with as a mixer. And toward the end of my recording career, and oh, I forgot to tell you, I started in Philadelphia, but in 1978, uh, my boss asked me if I would be willing to move to New York to manage the new New York studio. So that's how I wound up in New York, where I still am. And then when, once I moved to New York, I was still, I had a reputation by that time Man, are you, got, you guys falling asleep? Just slap yourselves. You know, I don't want to bore you to death. No, here, no, nobody's going to fall I, asleep for this story. <laughs> all right. Well, while I was in Philadelphia, um, I more or less gravitated into doing dance mixes with this guy named Tom Moulton. He's the guy who invented disco mixes, okay, where you would take a regular song and stretch it out into four hours with drum breaks and stuff. So I did a lot of dance mixes with him. And um, once I got to New York, I still had that reputation, so I got hired to do some of the other stuff, and that's how come I wound up with Madonna and some of the people in New York. And in, in the, the, the later stages of my career, I worked with Talking Heads. I did some stuff with them. And the last, stuff, the, the last project stuff I did was in the 90s with the Allman Brothers. I did six albums with them. And then somehow wow. I went from there into TV audio, and then I spent a few years doing that. Right, and and just just to mention because you know we were talking about it before we we started recording was how many years do you spend working at the View doing the sound for the View the TV show? I'd say at least four. Uh, it might have been more, but what happened at the View was after a while they needed somebody to work on the weekend Good Morning America. You know, Good Morning America was originally only a five-day-a-week show, weekday show. And then they started right. doing it on the weekends, and they needed somebody to do audio there. So they asked me if I was interested. I said, yeah, I'm interested. So I was working at The View four days a week, and then I was working at Good Morning America on the weekends. And then there was this big furor because, oh, my God, the guy's working six days a week. We've got to pay him overtime. You know, some kind of crazy nonsense like that. So mm-hmm. it, it, was, it was very strange. There was some political stuff involved. And in the end, uh, somebody who knew more than me said, you know, you really should make a choice between whether you want to work at here, meaning The View, or GMA on the weekends, because it looks like you're not going to be able to do both. And he said, I'll tell you the truth, I think you should take the weekend gig. 
So that's what I did. I wound up doing a weekend gig for maybe eight years, you know, for working two days a week. It was fun. I mean, I really, I had a run of different kinds of things to do, and they were they were all fun, and informative, and educating, and uh, educational, uh, in their own right. So, yeah, talking about it now, sounds like I was a busy guy, but um, I guess I was. But yeah, I, I I did from out of nowhere. I managed to do all this stuff, you know, with no formal training in anything. So um, I guess luck had something to do with it. I guess there was some degree of uh, talent or ability that kept me in once I got in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it, you know, you are, you're a lucky guy because a lot of, you know, you got in at the right time. You got into the, the sound, sound business when, you know, you could just walk in as a kid, you know, and, and grow into the job. Um, it's a, you know, it's a dream job that so many people would love to have had. I mean, and just imagine what people, people would have given to be the, you know, to be the, the guy on the, in the booth who could actually hear the Beatles in Atlantic city during the concert. I mean, um, you know, you're from Philadelphia and, or you've worked in Philadelphia as a radio DJ. And I don't know if you, you might know T Morgan, um, yeah, sure. He, he worked with me at DAF. It was him, right. Michael Pearson, Ed Shockey, T. Yeah. Morgan, me, Steve, Mar- Steve Marco. His name's really yeah. Steve Marguerano, but it was, and my father's son, Steve Leon. That was the group. Yeah. So, Steve, yeah, and I've had uh, T. Morgan on the show because he he managed to get a job as a security guard to get in to see the Beatles in Philadelphia. Um, yeah. You know, when he was young. So, you know, you 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 know, you have your Philadelphia story and, and T Morgan and other DJ also managed to get in. So, you know, it, it that's what makes all of these stories so interesting is how, how the different stories of, you know, whether you're a fan or whether you're you know, you had a job working around them. Everybody ex- has experienced, you know, everybody got to experience different and I always say every every story is interesting and I love hearing them. And I just want to thank well, you uh, so much. Before you go, uh, if you're going or whatever's next, I just want to add something here. The idea that you have to be educated and, and uh, there's only one path to get into a, a given uh, career still the case. It's always going to be the case that if you, if there's something you aspire to and you can just get your foot in the door, you can get somebody to say hello or offer to go run for coffee or something like that, or just let people know who you are, that you're interested. Sometimes they need somebody to just do something, anything, you know, Oh, somebody didn't mm-hmm. show up today. You know, I need somebody to, to you know, to answer the phones. Uh, I still think that hanging around is an acceptable way to get started in any career. If you find somebody who lets you hang around. Um, I don't think that, you know, we don't have the, the really uh, 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 formulaic, uh, system of apprenticeship and that sort of thing that used to exist. But I don't believe that there'll ever be a case where somebody couldn't just hang around and one day, you know, have that door open. Yeah. Put that out there. Yeah. And you know something, look at, look at the, look at the uh, Beatles scruffs who hung around, you know, Abbey road studios and some of them ended up on recordings as background singers. (laughs) It can happen. folks. So, um, anyway, Jay, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us your story. It was, it, it always makes my day to sit down and, and talk, 
uh, with somebody and, and get to hear their story and live live these uh, experiences through them. And thank you, listeners, well, for another. For thing. Go ahead. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a, you know a lovely interview, and uh, I'm, I'm glad there's something in there you can use. Feel free. Uh, you know something? I, I'm not editing it. It's all come. It's 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 going to be out there now. Your story's out there. Oh Jay. my God. Uh, okay. That's scary, but okay. Thank Nobody knows you where so I'm much. Much, so I'm safe. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. And thank you, listeners, for uh, coming and listening to another episode of I Saw the Beatles. Come back again soon when we'll have another fabulous guest for you to hear about how they saw the Beatles. Take us away, Cliff. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.